And all of a sudden, creditors were less clear that they wanted to roll over this debt and it was going to cost Ghana and others a whole lot more. So all of a sudden, the debt becomes more problematic. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. According to the International Monetary Fund, 22 countries in Africa are either in debt distress or at high risk of debt distress, that is, being unable to fulfill their financial obligations to creditors. This is nearly double the number of countries in Africa in some form of debt crisis just a few years ago. Why so many countries in Africa are facing a fiscal crisis today and the implications of debt distress for economic and social development is explained at length by my guest today, Mark Plant, Senior Policy Fellow at the Center for Global Development. We kick off discussing why Ghana and Zambia are illustrative of broader fiscal trends in Africa, and then have a discussion about the policy conundrums facing countries as they navigate these fiscal crises and seek to satisfy creditors without sacrificing substantial gains in economic and social development. The debt burden facing African countries and the increasing share of government revenue that goes to servicing debt as opposed to social spending is one of the key trends that will drive political and economic developments in Africa in the coming year. This conversation does a good job of giving you the context you need to understand the causes and implications of debt distress in Africa as many of these situations become more acute. And just a quick note before we start, as always, please reach out to me if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. I love hearing from you. You can use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com to reach me. I read all your emails. I respond to all of your emails. Thank you. And if you are a regular listener to the show, there are now Three ways you can support the show, become a premium subscriber, earn rewards for yourself, and help keep the lights on around here. You can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches and sign up for a premium subscription there. If you're listening to me right now on Apple Podcasts with just a few taps of your finger, you can become a premium subscriber. 
And I have just recently launched a Substack in which I will deliver the transcripts of episodes directly to your inbox very soon after the episode is published. To sign up for that service, please visit globaldispatches.substack.com. Thank you. And now here is my conversation with Mark Plant from the Center for Global Development. I'm curious to learn from you if there are any particular examples of countries in debt distress right now in Africa that are particularly illustrative. And if you can kind of tell that story, that'd be a great entry point into this conversation. Sure. I think one country that's very much in the news is Ghana, which is a country in uh, Western Africa, primarily a producer of gold and cocoa. It's also gotten some petroleum resources in the last few years. But in the last few months, Ghana declared a debt moratorium. It stopped paying its external debt, particularly the debt denominated in euros, so eurobond debt. And it also restructured its domestic debt. And the reason it had to do this is because the debt service, the amount of interest that it was paying on the debt, was getting so large that it was absorbing all of the government budget, that Ghana didn't have room to spend on anything else. Yeah, I saw something like it was nearly like what 70 to 100% of all Ghana government revenues went to servicing the debt. That's right. I mean, the latest official statistics out of the IMF was at 30%, but that was about a year or two ago. And so it's ballooned to 70 to 100%. And so that just sucks up the entire budgetary space. It doesn't allow the government to do anything else. The other thing that was happening is because of the world situation, particularly due to Ukraine. Ghana's sales had slowed down, its exports were slowing down, its import bill was much heavier. So it was having to draw on its foreign exchange reserves, which is okay if you're in a sound debt situation. But one role for the foreign exchange reserves is to make sure the debt gets paid evenly. And so in some sense, you had two demands. You had to balance imports and exports with your foreign exchange reserves, and you had to pay the debt. And they just didn't have enough foreign exchange reserves. So they've dropped precipitously, I think, from something like $9 billion last year to 3 or $4 billion this year. And that's a fairly rapid drop. It's well less than the sort of standard three months of imports that governments like to have in the bank to smooth over, if you will, economic transactions. So Ghana just decided in the face of these massive debts to stop servicing them, to, to place a moratorium, as you said, on payment of these debts. How did the creditors respond to this? Well, naturally, the creditors don't like that. They like to be paid. And so Ghana's uh, ratings with the credit agencies fell, which made it more expensive for Ghana to do any debt financing. And on the other hand, I think most creditors who were examining Ghana closely knew this reckoning was going to come. And Ghana sort of acted precipitously to say, OK, we're just going to stop. We have to pause here and we have to figure out how we're all going to get out of this mess because it's going to take cooperation between Ghana and its creditors. The other thing Ghana did that was interesting is a lot of the Ghanaian debt was actually domestic debt, not international debt. It had a very large portion due to its own people. And there it restructured the debt. It unilaterally said, if you have a bond with us, if you're going to have to pay us now, we're going to restructure this to spread the payments out over a period of time. This did not sit well with domestic Ghanaian investors. 
But the choice that the Ghanaian government sort of presented them was, well, it's either you take a longer period of time for us to repay you, or we don't repay you at all. And so they were forced into a situation where their government said, look, we're just going to pay you over a longer period of time. This eased the pressure somewhat on the Ghanaian government. And they're using this moment to think about how they're going to get out of the situation. They began talks with the International Monetary Fund, which is usually the arbiter of these things. The IMF has come in. They've discussed the program of consolidation, economic consolidation with the Ghanaian government, which has reached a staff level improvement. That is, the Ghanaian government and the IMF staff have agreed on a potential program that will go to the IMF board in due course. How illustrative is this Ghanaian example of other trends underway throughout many other countries in sub-Saharan Africa right now? So I think one or two pieces of the Ghanaian story are relevant. One is that Ghanaians saw the opportunity to borrow quite a bit on international markets, particularly the Eurobond market, when interest rates were very low and when, in fact, investors abroad were searching for return. Think back two or three years ago, global interest rates were one or two percent. And so if you invested in advanced countries, that's how much you got. If you invested in Ghana, you could get eight, 10, 12 percent. So this was a real opportunity for both the investor and for Ghana. Ghana is in desperate need of investment in its infrastructure. It's a growing economy, growing quickly, and it needed that kind of cash to make the needed investments to move forward. So that's fairly typical, and you see that repeated in many countries across Africa. What's a bit atypical about Ghana is it didn't rely too heavily on Chinese debt. And some creditors have said that makes Ghana, in some sense, a more appealing candidate for debt restructuring than others. Is that because in other countries in which China does hold a significant amount of the debt, China sort of insists on getting paid first, whereas other creditors in Ghana's situation could expect to be higher up on the uh, the food chain? I think an interesting contrast is Zambia, which had some of the same problems, although Zambia's always had relatively poorly managed economy, heavily reliant on copper exports. But they also relied heavily on Chinese lending to finance their infrastructure and other parts of their government spending. And Zambia started this process of debt restructuring a couple of years ago. It's been a long process. And China, through something called the Common Framework, which is a framework put together by the G20, Zambia entered into this Common Framework to discuss with all its creditors, including China, how we would, it would restructure the debt. This is the first time China came to the table in one of these major multilateral debt restructures. But it's taken well over two years to come to any conclusion. There is an IMF program. The IMF is now supporting Zambia on the basis of Zambia's promises that it would work out with its creditors how it would get a debt reduction. China is its lead creditor, but that deal still hasn't been struck. It was supposed to be struck by the end of 2022, and there's some recalcitrance on the part of China to enter into that deal. Part of this is due to the nature of Chinese debt. We think of Chinese debt as being coming from one entity in China. There are, in fact, many entities in China. It's not uniform. And it also is that Chinese debt is not terribly transparent. The terms of the debt are not terribly well known. So it's difficult for other creditors when they're looking at 
how debt might be rescheduled to understand if they're getting a fair deal compared to China. And every creditor who goes into a debt negotiation wants to get the same deal as every other creditor. They don't want one creditor getting a better deal than they are because implicitly they're financing that creditor. So Zambia and Ghana are two key examples of countries in debt distress at the moment in sub-Saharan Africa. But there are you know, many others. This is quickly becoming a key trend as we head into 2023. But just you know, a few years ago, this was not as acute a problem. How did we get to the point where so many countries in Africa, I think I saw 22 countries most recently were either in debt distress or at high risk of going into debt distress. At this moment, how did this come to be over the last few years? Yes, it's clear we're looking at the same numbers. It's about 22 countries. And I think before COVID, we were talking 12 or 15 countries. And even before the economic crisis after COVID came, there were some warning signals that were coming that over the last, say, 15 years, African countries have increased their growth, they're growing faster, they've bettered their fiscal management, they're managing their budgets better. And this allowed them to, in fact, approach external creditors and ask for investment. And again, as I said before, in the case of Ghana, investment conditions were propitious for Africa. Returns were low in the S- elsewhere in the world. Potential returns in Africa were high. The economies were broadly stable at that point. And so investors said, ah, this looks like a good deal. I can get 6, 8, 10, 12%, as opposed to investing in Japan, where I get 1% or 2% at most. And everyone loves Ghana. Everyone loves Ghana. Ghana has been a darling of the international community for a variety of reasons. They portray themselves as being very well managed. They're at the sort of upper end of the development spectrum. And they have some important resources. They have gold and they have cocoa, which both are in high demand throughout the world. And so... Ghana looked like an engine. Zambia had copper, which is of interest to anyone doing anything in IT. Copper is a central resource. And so people looked and said, look, you know, copper, gold, these are going to be commodities that are going to continue to be in high demand. And so the economies will continue to grow, so it's worth investing in them. But I think there are a couple of things that happened. One is that there were some bumps in the commodity prices. And in fact, prices started to fall, particularly as demand in China started to fall. This was sort of in 2015, 2016. And so all of a sudden, these countries' exports weren't looking as good. And so that started making the debt situation worse in terms of the overall burden on the government. Their revenues went down, so the debt becomes a larger part of it. And the other thing that I think happened, and this is probably true for most of these countries, is when you invest in euro bonds, the maturity is usually about five years. And so you should be investing in things that are going to return the interest in about five years' time. But in fact, the type of investment that's being done in these countries, the returns are over a much longer period of time. Infrastructure returns are over 10, 15 years. If you're talking about education, that can be an entire generation to get the return on investment of education. So you had a mismatch between the length of the loan and the potential return. Now, that could easily be handled if you could just keep rolling over the debt. But life started to get tough for everybody, particularly with COVID. The world economy slid into a a large recession. Trade stopped. These countries are heavily dependent on trade. Their revenues stopped. And all of a sudden, creditors were less clear that they wanted to roll over this debt. And it was going to cost Ghana and others a whole lot more. So all of a sudden, 
that that becomes more problematic. And presumably on top of that, during COVID, one way that most countries dealt with COVID was by through some sort of stimulus, right? And I have to imagine African countries did their own version of stimulus by borrowing money, whereas here in in the West, we've been able to service those debts in many African countries. The stimulus required in the face of COVID has been harder to repay. That's absolutely right. In many ways, the United States and the European countries they printed money to do their stimulus. And they had that ability to do that because U.S. dollars are acceptable anywhere. So the U.S. can just issue bonds and everybody's going to buy them. The Ghanaians don't have that luxury. They can't print their own money. In fact, you see that they did print their own money and the result has been a huge inflation in the local currency. So they had to try to buy their way out of the COVID-induced recession, but they didn't have the full set of tools that enabled them to do that. And they didn't have the deep reserves that would enable you to do that either. That made the situation even worse. And then on top of COVID, you had the 2022 Russia's invasion of Ukraine last February, which presumably also induced further shocks on African economies, as it did in economies all over the world. Absolutely. And many of these countries, as I said, are heavily export dependent. They're heavily dependent on imports of foodstuffs. And Ukraine is in some sense the breadbasket of the world. And these countries needed Ukrainian wheat and it wasn't coming through. And so things were getting expensive and uh, they were having to find their way out of it. Plus, you had the general recession that was associated with the Ukraine invasion. So it was two shocks very close in a row on top of a somewhat precarious, perhaps over-indebted situation that they were in the lead up, if you will, to the two crises. And so the two together just became untenable for many of these countries. So here we are in early 2023. And as you noted, 22 countries are in some sort of debt emergency. How does this debt emergency in various African countries impact people living in African countries? You know, right now we're talking about creditors and debtors as sort of abstractions, but how do these sort of fiscal crises impact the day-to-day lives of ordinary people? So as the example of Ghana illustrates, if you have a government budget, all of a sudden 70 to 100% of that government budget has to go to service your external debt. You have no money left over to pay for basic government services. So immediately when you face one of these debt crises, governments are constrained in their spending and they're going to spend less. And the question is, what are they going to spend less on? Well, if you sort of go down the list of what government has to do, most people say, well, the government has to do defense. So they're not probably going to cut defense expenditures, which are pretty bare anyways in many of these countries. The government has to do basic services like taxation and running of government services. Where there's often room to maneuver is an investment in either infrastructure, roads, wells, all the things you need to make an economy grow, but also in the social sectors. You're not going to build that extra school. You're not going to add that extra health clinic in that you were going to. You could perhaps postpone it a bit. So you see health expenditures, social expenditures at risk as well. And the ministers of finance in these countries are are facing terribly difficult decisions as to what it is they're going to spend on and what it is they're not going to spend on. And the decision-making process, like in any government, is political. 
It has to do with who has influence, who doesn't. It's never straightforward. You see that in the United States. You see that everywhere when the government budget has to be cut. But it's usually the most vulnerable that get cut from the budget one way or another. And so it has an effect on poverty. And you've seen poverty rates go up tremendously in Africa in the last two years. Is there any specific example you could cite of a social service or social spending in a country decreasing as a result of these fiscal pressures? Mm, I don't have that at my fingertips. I know that in the two programs that the IMF has put together with Ghana and Zambia, there's been a big effort to protect those social services, particularly basic support services from being cut. And I mean, the fact that the IMF has to sort of come in and put that protection in indicates there's a tendency to cut those things first. So we're at this kind of calamitous moment of fiscal pressures, of debt distress and debt crises in several countries. Is there any sort of opportunity for broad-based either debt relief you know, we saw this big campaign 23 years ago around the millennium, around debt cancellation and debt forgiveness. Is that even in the realm of possibility in 2023? And if not, are there other potential opportunities or solutions to this crisis? So a few things have been done already. After COVID hit, there was something called the Debt Service Suspension Initiative, where bilateral creditors, official creditors like France, uh, Germany, uh, countries, agreed to forego the repayment of debt service for a time. It turned out to be two years till the end of 2021. So many countries who were in difficulty just didn't have to pay their service. It was postponed. It eventually had to be paid. But they were, if you will, had a little more headroom in 2020 and 2021. The other thing the world did is put together something, as I mentioned before, called the Common Framework, which was supposed to be a framework in which countries who were in debt distress could approach their creditors and the creditors would act in a coordinated way. And the Common Framework was touted as a great achievement in early 2020. And the main achievement was that it was common, particularly that not only did all the traditional creditors, the Western creditors, agree to this but some of the new creditors, particularly China, agreed to sit around the table when countries applied for this common framework. Three countries have applied, Zambia, Chad, and Ethiopia. Zambia, as I mentioned before, is just after two years of negotiation may come to fruition in the next several months. It's been a long, long process. Chad took a couple years, but ultimately, Chad is an oil exporter with the price of oil zooming in the last few months. The creditors decided that Chad doesn't need any relief after all, which I don't think sits well with the Chadians. And Ethiopia has been mired in political conflict. And you have to have a government at the table whose attention is focused on debt relief to undertake this kind of thing. That just hasn't gone anywhere. So Ghana has talked about coming to the common framework. But Ghana, the Ghana minister is reported in the press to have said, look, I'm only going to come in the common framework if you guys are going to get this done in six months time. I'm not going to do it if it's going to take two years. So the common framework, I think, should be lauded for being common, getting China to the table. But in fact, there was no framework. And debt relief efforts in the past, particularly the one you referenced, the highly indebted poor countries initiative in the early 2000s, had a framework that said, if you went in, we have certain measurements, and this is the deal you'll get going out. Countries knew going in what the process was, how long it would take, 
and what they were potentially going to get on the other side. So they could make a good calculation about whether they should do this or not. And creditors could do the same thing. That kind of process isn't in place. And I think the only hope is to get that kind of process in place. And the world seems to be longing for it, but there seems to be a lack of leadership as to who's going to try to drive that process and decide what it's going to look like. Well, as someone who has studied this issue so carefully and for so long, is there a process you might recommend that would be equitable in the sense that it did not leave African populations uh, in privation due to their government's you know, uh, inability to spend on social services because they have to service debt? Is there like a way out of this that is in a way like, you know, equitable? I think there is a way out. You have to have a basic analytic tool on which you can decide how much debt relief is going to be accorded to the various creditors. That tool exists. It's called the Debt Sustainability Framework, which is put together by the IMF and the World Bank for these countries. So that gives you a measurement tool. You have to have an accord that, in fact, everybody's going to come to the table. And one of the big puzzles in this debt episode is there are a lot of private sector creditors. If you look at the old debt relief to 20, 25 years ago, the private sector was very, very small. And the difficulty with doing debt relief for the private sector is the private sector wants its money. And particularly if it's a big investment firm or a big investment pool, they have investors in their pool that they're responsible to. So they're hesitant to come into this. There's a critical question as to how you get the private investors in. And one way to do that is to say, look, you get paid nothing unless you agree to this debt restructuring. That is going to require some legislative change, perhaps in the UK, perhaps in, in the United States, that would force the private creditors to the table. That could be done if there were the global willingness to do it. It would take some policy pull by various important policymakers. So if you sort of had this combination of a good framework, some expectations of given your situation, how much do you deserve to get, and an inclusive creditor committee, if you will, group of creditors, you can get somewhere. But you don't quite yet have any of those elements very clearly laid out. There have been some proposals on the table. Uh, Lazard uh, in Paris put together a provocative but interesting proposal about how you might begin to measure these things. At least it was a proposal on the table. You don't see that from the IMF and the World Bank right now, which is a shame. You know, and earlier you also mentioned that in Ghana's case and presumably other countries as well, domestic debt, borrowing from their own domestic sources, presumably you know, banks within the country, is just a huge source of the debt. Are there any implications of that kind of debt versus external debt for the functioning of a economy in Africa? Sure. I think you have to realize that many of these countries don't have very sophisticated financial frameworks. Oftentimes, the major investors are not the amalgamation of mom and pop like it is in the United States, but the big pension funds, public pension funds, some of the big companies that have large pools of money. And they lend money to the government, figuring they're going to get the money back. But if the government suddenly doesn't pay it back, then you've got some difficulties. And so what you don't have in these countries is the what we call intermediation between the little investor and the big investor that allows the government to borrow at scale. So when the government borrows, it borrows from sort of big, big uh, financial entities. And that makes it more and more difficult to get any relief from these financial entities. 
because suppose you default on your domestic debt, then you're defaulting on your public pensions. Well, then you're just hurting the same people that you're hurting in other ways. You're hurting your domestic pensioners, really. So going forward in the coming months, are there any indicators or inflection points that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you broadly how the debt crisis may play out across these 22 African countries? So I think one important thing is to understand if this is going to be really a debt crisis where things grind to a halt in many of these countries, or it's just going to be a very severe development crisis. It's just going to postpone the necessary investment that needs to be made. And so it'll it'll be interesting to see what government budgets look like as we go forward, how governments intend to deal with this problem. I think the world is looking very carefully at Ghana and how Ghana will work its way through this, whether Ghana will go into the common framework and what the result will be. I think people are looking carefully at Zambia to see what the Chinese, in fact, will do and whether the Chinese are going to be straightforward and step up to the table or not. And I think the world is looking to the World Bank and the IMF for some guidance as to what this framework should look like. The chief economist of the World Bank recently published an article saying we need a better debt framework. He didn't suggest what that would be, but it's an important step forward to have a high-level official saying that. And so I think the hope is that as the severity of this crisis seems to grow, that the international institutions will step up to the table and say, okay, this is the way out of it. Because it really has to be a collective solution. And I think the international agencies are the ones to lead the way. Well, Mark, this was very helpful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.